From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what electric vehicles are learning from Formula One, what artificial intelligence means for sustainability, a look at biomimicry at 20, and are you ready for catalytic philanthropy? We're giving till it hurts this week on 350. It's July 21st, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me here is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. I'm happy to spend my birthday with you. I know. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank how you. Is, how is 35 anyway? Oh, so sweet. So sweet. I will remember that on your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> my 35th birthday is, uh, well, way more than old enough to rent a car now. So I don't know how old that is, but that's great. I hope you uh, take some time this weekend. Do you have birthday plans? Here in steamy New York, I will be having a barbecue and ice cream cake. cake ice cream cake, and I mean all in one. That sounds Absolutely. sounds great. That is my standby. Eating, <laughs> eating ice cream cake with a spork, you know, exactly. get all the ones together. Uh, but meanwhile, you've been to the races. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. I have been to the races. I'm usually a fan of the two-footed or four-footed uh, kind, if you will. But I actually went to my first ever car race. In Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, all, of all places, last There's a weekend. There's racetrack in Brooklyn? There is not a racetrack in Brooklyn, but the Formula E guys managed to make one um, on the streets of, of Red Hook, down by the cruise terminal. In any event, I, I actually got to spend some time at the Formula E race. So I've heard of Formula One. What's Formula E? So Formula E was created a couple of years back to test the, the bounds, if you will, of electric vehicle technology, uh, to really bang on the batteries, to figure out the drivetrains, to, um, to test things that, that uh, might eventually show up in mainstream vehicles, or maybe not. And that's very similar to what car racing has been doing for years. Most people think it's about, you know, guys with testosterone driving around an oval, and, and it is that to some extent, but it's also about pushing the limits of vehicle technology. And I think a lot of what we take for granted in, in vehicles, uh, some of it at least, uh, came out of uh, NASCAR and and Formula One and other of the, the parts of the racing ecosystem. Yeah, it's actually speaking of testosterone, <laughs> Joel, I actually spoke with a driver. I mean, I spoke with several drivers, but um, I spent a, a large chunk of the day with a uh, Italian race car driver um, who is not a guy. Uh, and one of the things that she shared with me, uh, Michaela Cerruti, uh, she was on the, she did this circuit for the last couple of years, was taking a break on this one. But um, I think that one of the most fascinating things that she shared with me and that I didn't realize was how much the drivers depend on the sound of the, you know, the internal combustion engine to make decisions about speed and braking and, and where they're cornering and so forth. And that obviously is not a factor in an EV race. So a very different um, experience from, from traditional Formula One. And we're going to play a little bit of an interview you did there later in this episode, so stand by for that. But for now, let's race on to the Week in Review. 
So we have to start this week with a piece we ran on Monday by our editor-at-large, David Crane, called Inside the Rise and Fall of NRG's Green Strategy. We've been tracking NRG uh, for a long, long time. In fact, they have been uh, in the past a sponsor of this webcast. Um, and um, the piece that David Crane, David Crane was the former CEO of NRG, uh, he wrote about a, a decision that was made uh, last week um, to divest uh, a, a number of parts of NRG, uh, including uh, possibly all of its renewables business. It's not yet clear. Um, and David, uh, who built uh, a lot of that business, he started the building of that till he was uh, let go at the end of 2015, um, fired by the board. Uh, wrote a piece is kind of hard hitting, pretty hard hitting, and um, um, I just it was explaining what that was about. Yeah, for me, this this piece really s synergized and and clarified for me like the the dilemma that so many companies face, and not not just energy companies, but all companies as they are adopting a long term sustainability strategy. Right, they they are focused on long term visions, um, and unfortunately, the CEO's life it, it depends a lot on the short term stock price. So, um, when it came down to it, it seems like Energy made a, a decision that was was well. I mean, it was clearly um, precipitated by activist investors, which is the case for, with many uh, companies these days. It's not just uh, companies like Energy, energy companies. But um, for me, that kind of clarified the dilemma, if you will, of of CEOs. How do you how do you do this long term thing that's good for the planet, good for your company, good for the people at the company? But you know, how do you handle this this investor um, this investor pressure to to do things for the short term? Yeah, this piece got a lot of um, of comments, and uh, there's a, quite a long thread there. I encourage you to check that out. There's a couple of things I want to clear up though about the piece. One is that David Crane, uh, the author. Uh, basically implied that uh, as a result of this, the company would be not be able to fulfill its uh, the commitment it made, its bold commitment it announced in 2014 to reduce its carbon emissions 90% by mid-century, by 2050. In some ways, that seems logical. Uh, and the, the reality is that that's not necessarily the case. Now, I, I'm not uh, the proof is in the pudding, but according to what NRG has come back with and uh, sort of miffed at this piece that its uh, uh, former CEO uh, wrote for us, is that uh, there's no one ever said that they're going to cut that and that they're a third of the way there already, and that's still on the table. And so that's heartening to me. I'd be interested to see how the company does that with uh, far fewer or maybe even no renewable energy sources. But I just want to clarify that and, um, and and give credit to the company if that, in fact, is what's going on. The other thing I want to clear up uh, is that David's piece was kind of hard-hitting to some to the sustainability team. Um, and uh, I feel what personally bad about that because I think these are good people. I know um, most of them, some of them I consider friends. In the piece, he said, to be blunt, they, the sustainability team, needs to do a little soul searching uh, when they stand up and reaffirm carbon goals that their company has no means to achieve and no one outside their immediate circle believes that all they accomplish is harm to themselves as professionals. And he concluded, if they persist, they risk becoming evonked 
in other words, complicit. And these are really good people. These are hardworking people. And, and David does give them credit earlier in the piece when he talks about the 18 months of hard work spearheaded by NRG's sustainability team that led to the board making this bold commitment to 90% uh, carbon reductions. And they've been doing a lot of other things uh, that have you know, allowed the company to get to this uh, one third of its uh, way towards that goal. So I just want to uh, you know, maybe a cold cup of tea to them uh, who who already feel kind of uh, unhappy with this piece. But my hats are off off to them because they are uh, you know, the unheralded and maybe dissed heroes of this story uh, that they have been um, uh, doing God's work at NRG and and following down this path. And and from what I hear, continue, plan to continue to do that. So that's that's great. Yeah. I actually have a piece coming up soon that points to that um, about their headquarters and what they've managed to pull off there, um, despite not even owning the building. So stay tuned. Then we ran a piece called How Catalytic Philanthropy Could Solve Global Waste. First question here is, what the heck is catalytic philanthropy? Is this a new brand of things? I hadn't heard about it before this. This is a piece written by Doug Woodring, who has a run something called nonprofit called the Ocean Recovery Alliance. He's uh, based in Hong Kong uh, and uh, has been running a uh, conference for the last number of years called Plasticity uh, that um, is sort of bringing some of the issues around uh, plastic waste to light and and working you know with industry and activists to try and figure some of this out. Catalytic philanthropy says refers to an approach in which donors take a structured active role in addressing some of the world's biggest challenges. Um, according to Bill Gates, who's, who's used this term, it says it has the high stakes feel of the private market, but can transcend the key market limitations above. In other words, the investor doesn't need to share all of the benefits. So this is uh, obviously a, a hybrid here where you're talking about investing in things that have that are businesses that have a payback, but also have a huge social and environmental implications. And so therefore can be justified in some to some degree as philanthropy. Interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, it kind of it is a twist on, if you will, the idea of social entrepreneurship. So often, when a person or investor thinks about influencing change within a community, they think first of the NGOs in the community. What what nonprofits can I invest in? Um, who's doing great great work on the ground there? And that's important. But what's equally important is funding the actual private ventures, the, the business, the business infrastructure and the business community that's making some of those things happen on the ground there. I mean, this seems to be a very local concept to me. I love the term. I really love the term it, because it, it implies that there will be change and that you're really um, energizing a, a movement in a, in a community. So hats off to that. <laughs> I, I like that phrase. I'm not a big fan of, of marketing twists on, on familiar concepts, but this one really uh, resonated with me. And just to be a little bit uh, sharper on what he's talking about here, Doug Woodring, um, it's really in developing economies where they're trying to figure out how to do what we do uh, reasonably well in, in the developed world, which is resource recovery, waste hauling, uh, recycling, and ideally turning those back into new resources. And so, you know, you leveraging catalytic philanthropy would allow small and medium-sized businesses to recover and process waste, in particular plastic, which is the ultimate material challenge in a lot of waste streams. 
and uh, allow communities to capture the value from materials, creating jobs and, and uh, incentivizing econ local economies to collect it properly, reducing the waste burden. You get the drift of how this plays out in terms of, of both economic, uh, social and, of course, uh, environmental gains. So uh, catalytic philanthropy, uh, that's an interesting uh, bridge to, uh, as he says, bridge the funding gap for small businesses and local operators. And, and actually, just one other point from my brain, if you will, is I feel like this goes hand in hand with um, some of the, the local um, regulations or local programs that are supporting things like what you were just talking about. So if a city or community sets a recycling goal, how does the community, um, the business community get, get to participate? So I think a lot of this goes hand in hand. Right with the with the prop the public social movement, if you will, in a, in a given region. Yeah, and then another story we ran this week is uh, on uh, artificial intelligence. What AI means for sustainability by Connor Riffle, who's uh, co-founder of something called the ESG Trends and has been a part of the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project. Um, Heather, this is uh, your area of expertise. What did you make of this piece? So uh, I, I wrote a piece earlier this year exploring this from the concept of a supply chain, right? So um, I've already heard about um, artificial intelligence and um, different various supply chain applications um, using machine learning to, to follow um, social trends in a region to understand and predict and, and, and get, get on top of um, maybe problems um, with water or so forth. And, and so artificial intelligence, which I think of as, as using a machine to learn, right, about what's going on and to go out and do things, collect information or, or, do, or complete tasks that, that humans would, would really have to spend a lot of time doing manually. Um, that's, for me, the, the sort of overall concept. But um, Connor's article uh, kind of pushes the concept even further um, and talks about how AI might have um, applications in, for example, autonomous vehicles, right? So helping things manage their, where they're driving in a, in a network um, and, and learning from driver, right? So that one of the biggest applications we hear about um, is how artificial intelligence is collecting data about human driving, um, the best drivers, the, the ones that are the safest, the ones that are using routing the most efficiently, if you will, and that information is going to be poured into AVs. You will not have autonomous self-driving vehicles without artificial intelligence. Um, you're also going to have it, um, if you want to take a, a big example from the technology world, in data centers, right? Uh, and actually operations centers, like big power, power goods and so forth. Um, there is no way that, for example, a data center can use energy efficiently without using artificial intelligence to uh, act on certain signals that it's seen in the past and do things that that um, you might not expect and, or that would take too long to pull off uh, or react to as a human. So uh, the, the, the thing that, that interested me is sort of from um, Connor's initial research on this topic was he was he was looking at how artificial intelligence was showing up in annual reports, right? So everyone is talking about this. All the big major technology companies are talking about this. And he went and looked at, at AI and how it was mentioned in, in 10K filings and so forth. And then he went and looked at um, how it was being mentioned in corporate sustainability reports um, and CDP disclosures. And there, be, there has been likewise a huge spike since 2014 in the mentions. So we're seeing uh, more companies talk about using artificial intelligence for things like 
efficiency or to manage emissions reductions, and and also about using it for um, thinking about new products. So stay tuned. I you know the article doesn't go into a whole lot of specific applications, but it is a great reminder of why we need to keep our mind open and um, and think the unthinkable. And speaking of the unthinkable, uh, one of the things that that Connor talks about here is that. Uh, there are sustainability-related risks uh, that AI poses, and those aren't being addressed. Um, and he did a review of uh, more than 8,000 corporate social responsibility reports and CDP disclosure documents from the past couple of years. He said, we failed to find more than a handful of, of mentions of risks to companies that AI poses. And um, you know, as AI algorithms do more analysis, he says companies need to be diligent in ensuring that those algorithms are analyzing data and make predictions in a fair way. Uh, and he cites some examples uh, in credit scores. Uh, but uh, on the sustainability side, uh, the environmental side, there are issues around self-driving cars that, that uh, may lead to people making more trips and could lead to more emissions uh, and, and congestion and not decreases and some other things. So I, I and he cites a couple of reports and studies uh, that that get into this. So this is interesting to you of this whole technology piece of where that is going and how that affects sustainability. I encourage you to read that piece and click on through to the reports. So that was the sound of Formula E, uh, the race that Heather attended recently. And she talked a little bit about that at the beginning of the show. It sounds very different from the NASCAR race that I went to in May in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you did an interview there. So it wasn't all fun and games. <laughs> uh, I did uh, spend some time with um, both NL, um, the big Italian utility company, right? They were the power partner, if you will, at the event, helping uh, all the teams manage the energy and so forth. I also spent some time with one of the women that I have always admired um, from my, my background in the information technology industry, Padmastri Warrior. Uh, she used to be one of the top uh, ranked executives at, uh, at Cisco Systems. And about two years ago now, she made the very unusual decision to go to NEO. Um, that is one of the really high-end electric vehicle startups. Um, and I... I asked her why. I got a few minutes with her at this at this event and uh, spent it talking to her about two things. One is why did she go to this this startup, and also why were they why was this big high end company there, and and how could this this technology eventually find its way to mainstream electric vehicles? So here is my chat with Padmashri Warrior. What matters most for the mainstream market? You know, how do these things? How do some of these developments? filter down into the mainstream EV, and is there one that's going to go there first? Even before EVs with internal combustion, traditional car racing or any kind of racing, you're always pushing the limits of a system. Uh, you're pushing the limits of what a human driver can do. You're pushing the limits of the wash machine can do. Um, so when we go from internal combustion to EVs, the big change is the electric powertrain and the battery and how fast you can charge it. 
Um, and so, you know, you're pushing the limits of that. So I think Formula E, definitely, when, when we decided to participate in it, it was really to learn a lot about how what would be the limits of technology? How fast can you charge the battery? How quickly, how much torque can you get from the, so from the system? It's those sorts of things. And those kinds of learnings we always take um, into mainstream production, right? And, and that's one thing from a technology development perspective. Uh, from a consumer perspective, also it changes the mentality. I think uh, consumers typically perceived electric vehicles as very low speed, golf carts, city carts, maybe commute um, you know, from one point to another at low speed types of vehicles. Uh, nobody really equates electric vehicles with really high power, high performance vehicles. And so Formula E and events like this actually change that perception. So there's a technology progression that definitely races like this help us as manufacturers and technology developers to learn from. And then from, for the broader, broader consumers, it's a perception now that, wow, there's actually electric cars that are being raised. And the next evolution of this is obviously to add autonomy to this, right? And so uh, is that going to be an equally popular sport? That's a question that remains to be seen. We now enjoy drivers driving the car. There's a whole driver element to this. What happens when you... Uh, when the importance of the driver becomes less and gets more augmented with technology. So I think that would be the next evolution. What is it possible to learn from the other car, uh, car manufacturers at a race like this? Do you learn from the other, other companies too? Sure. I think as an industry you learn. I think when you're introducing a new technology, I think every manufacturer takes a different approach because there's no right approach yet. You know, everybody experiments with different things. But as you progress, you know, I'm sure from the inception of Formula E to now, we've each learned from each other's mistakes and those things get adopted. You know, of course, every car manufacturer has their own proprietary um, technologies. And so in Formula E, they have certain rules on what could be, what should be standard, what should be new. And we all adhere to those rules. But right, no, so we learn a lot and that gets incorporated in the production vehicles. Not, not maybe not exactly because obviously these cars are built to be driven on a track with a, in a controlled environment with a very well-trained driver, uh, whereas the production cars we, we drive are going to be in uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan traffic uh, with maybe not so sophisticated drivers. And so you have to compensate for that difference. But having said that, I think some of the base technology principles are very transferable. I think that many individuals or people like myself would, would, would think about a car and they think about a piece of equipment and an engine and hardware. But it seems like these vehicles are very much software driven, um, that, that maybe that, that's where the, um, the differentiation lies. So and being that you come from the information technology industry and sort of the software world um, and open source and so forth. Just curious, what are the parallels between, uh, or what are the influences of the information technology industry on what's happening with the electric vehicles here and elsewhere? So increasingly, cars are becoming much more software-driven. We actually say many components in the car now are software-driven hardware, right? Um, and it's increasingly about also the passenger experience in addition to the driver experience. So, in, for example, in the supercar that we built, uh, the supercar is, you know, um, is a very, very high-performance electric car. Um, we also, though, enable an experience for the passenger where you can keep track of how many Gs, how fast the car is going. We monitor the pulse rate and the heart rate mm. for the passenger. Uh, some of those things are, is, are catered towards delivering the experience you have as a passenger, although you may not be driving the car, to sort of like feel that experience. 
and then in if you fast forward i would say 70 to 80% of the car in the next uh, decade or so will be a lot about software you know the 80% of the most valuable content in the car will be all digital in the next decade so that's a huge shift in the industry uh, we refer to that as a car 3.0 transformation you know if you think of the first uh, 70 years in the automobile technology evolution it was all about innovation in the mechanical and hydraulic systems right and then from 1970s to 2000s it was really about electric and electronic component and now from now to the next 10 years will be all about digital components so more artificial intelligence computer vision sensors radars uh, collision avoidance lane lane departure warnings smart parking lots of these things we're just beginning to see and someday we'll have cars that can completely drive themselves so that's going to be the future what applications do you see for your technology outside of the car like in other types of vehicles like mass transit vehicles or other formats yeah, I mean, all the things i mean electric vehicles for example you now powertrain and battery technologies are sophisticated enough it doesn't just need to be a uh, lightweight passenger vehicle right you know now we are talking about electric delivery vehicles electric uh, vehicles fleets um, trucks and they actually self driving technology being developed for fleets and trucks as well so a lot of these things are applicable across different modes of transportation um the one thing that we say will happen in the next decade is cars will evolve from just being a mode of conveyance into really a digital living space you know a space that actually moves you where you can do other things besides drive maybe someday you'll take a nap in your car as it's driving itself you'll be able to work in your car you'll be able to uh, watch a movie in your car so all the things you perhaps do in your business class seat today if you're flying you'll be able to do in your car someday um and so it it is really a dramatic shift that we are about to see in the industry how much did you know about automotive technology before you took the job what was the biggest revelation for you uh technology so I, didn't, i didn't grow up at all in the automotive industry i grew up in the tech industry my background is on in all mobile technology and and cloud you know that's where i was cto for motorola cto for cisco uh i was well, the, the reason i came to this industry i see the car increasingly becoming a computer it, the next big revolution in the compute platform is on wheels um you know it's sort of like going from the smartphone which is now the current mobile compute platform the next mobile compute platform will really be on wheels right it is that motion added to connectivity um that's very exciting to think about and so i i know a lot about technology and i've seen various industries get disrupted and and part of i was part of the company that got disrupted when the cell phone became a smartphone now i see the automotive industry about to get massively disrupted and that's very exciting for as a technologist to be here and i am now really loving cars and learn a lot from our vehicle engineering team all about you know it is at the end of the day it's a very complex electromechanical system still to build it's a very powerful machine um, you know the cars that are going to race here you saw in the garage is that they have an incredible amount of power in them um, so as an engineer that's very exciting to Well by the time this airs this race will be over and uh I just want to wish you good luck. Thank you so much. Looking forward to the race. For anyone listening to this podcast early in the morning, this next piece might perk you up. 
Associate Editor Anya Hellmeiser interviewed Monique Oxender, Chief Sustainability Officer of Keurig Green Mountain, about the coffee company's sustainability goals. Welcome, Anya. Good morning, Heather. How are you doing? Excellent. So tell me about Keurig. Keurig is the company behind the famous K-cups that have flooded onto the coffee market in the last couple of years. A little plastic pod releases the coffee of your choice. There is one main issue with this sort of coffee dispensing system. It's that the cups are not recyclable or biodegradable. And there are types of K-cups where you can refill them, but they're not really the most convenient or uh, popular ones on the market. So a couple years ago, about 2015, uh, The Atlantic came out with an article that talked about how there are up to 9 billion of these cups sold a year, but they're not... um, they, they can't go back into the circular economy, so they're ending up as as landfill trash. So now the company has set specific environmental goals that address K-cup waste. So Keurig has a goal of introducing 100% recyclable pods by 2020. And that's not the only goal um, that the company has ambitions for in terms of sustainability. The company also has uh, some human-centric sustainability goals, such as sourcing completely sustainable coffee. And on top of that, they also have a very generous volunteer program for its employees, up to 50 hours per year. And they also invite employees to come visit where uh, the, the coffee farms where the Keurig Green Mountain uh, coffee is sourced. So I spoke to Monique Oxender, Chief Sustainability Officer at Keurig Green Mountain, um, about the not only Keurig's goals, but also her own background. Uh, she previously worked as a sustainability manager at Ford, um, and I wanted to know how she brought her experience uh, into the present, into, into her coffee career, to make uh, this industry shift towards recyclability. So we covered a lot of ground, and here uh, is our conversation. What led you to a career in sustainability? I started out as a high school teacher. First journey down the career path, I taught biology and Spanish, and a lot of what I did tied back to environmental issues with the kids, be it from the academic point of view or just engaging with the students um, in my own interests. And I ended up going to grad school and did uh, the dual master's degree that was really, you know, in its beginning years at Michigan in uh, MBA and a master's of natural resource management. So the beginning days of kind of this intersection of business and sustainability. And by way of being in Michigan, ended up doing you know some consulting for GM, did uh, an internship at Ford, and had absolutely no intention necessarily of going into automotive, but had an incredible opportunity to turn what was an internship into a full-time position at Ford, working within purchasing and translating the newly authored human rights code that the company had to a supply chain program. So how do you implement a human rights code within the supply chain and putting all of the bits and and pieces of the puzzle together around that so that it was a cohesive social and environmental responsibility program or supply chain sustainability program that we could roll out across the global supply base. So I stayed there for eight years, had an incredible journey uh, with suppliers around the world. And then I jumped over into coffee, which to a lot of people seemed weird, this huge jump that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But when I did my master's work, I actually uh, wrote my thesis and did um, a lot of research on coffee supply chains. And uh, so I've been here for five years and 
leading the company through an incredible journey working on both, you know, the, the coffee farmer livelihood and sustainable sourcing side of things, as well as environmental responsibility, and then embracing this, you know, really significant opportunity we have in front of us in making the coffee pods themselves more sustainable. What made Keurig aware that the company needed to have a recycling goal? Well, there's two levels of the goal setting, right? There's there's the environmental goals overall, which for us include energy, water waste, um, and emissions. And then within, um, I guess you would say the waste category, uh, when you just sort of look across our value chain and you say, okay, what's the most impactful area for us to, to work on? Pretty clearly, it was recyclability of the pods. Now, if you look at it from a life cycle analysis, just take, you know, evaluate the product and you say, okay, what is it that we do that contributes from a footprint most heavily? Um, it's actually not our packaging. It's, it's not recyclability or not of the K-Cup. It is other areas. And we've done a lot of work on both our corporate footprint for carbon or corporate footprint for water to understand where those impacts are. That being said, when a consumer is using our product in the home, they're having a great experience, right? They're getting a consistent cup of great coffee every time they go back to that Keurig brewer. But if in the last five feet of that experience, they're taking the pod out of the brewer and they're putting it into the trash can as opposed to the recycling bin and it's leaving them with a bad feeling or a guilty feeling. It's not the last thing we want them to experience. And so that's, you know, we hear that. We hear that from our stakeholders. We hear it from our consumers. We want recyclability of the pod. That's what we're responding to is what we're hearing from our stakeholders, what they want, and they want recyclability. And what will it take for Keurig to reach the 100% recyclability goal by 2020? A lot of work. Um, and it's not beginning now. So that's the, the fantastic news. So we made this goal of 100% recyclable um, for the K-Cup pods uh, by the end of 2020. We're on track to meet that. Um, that being said, we've got pods hitting the store shelves now. Um, that's happening in Canada, and we're actually going to accelerate the transition in that country, and we are going to convert 100% of the pods in Canada by the end of 2018, so two years ahead of our overall North American goal of 2020. One thing that enables us to do is to learn from that transition, from the introduction of the pod to our consumers, to our partners, to our retailers, as well as you know, first and foremost, to our manufacturing network, because it requires changes to our manufacturing lines in order to produce a recyclable cup. What is changing is the actual material. So it's the plastic resin that we're changing. Our current cups are in number five. I'm sorry, our current cups are in number seven. The number seven cup is technically recyclable, and it is accepted in some communities today. It's not accepted in the majority of communities, which is what we are striving for. And so we are converting to a number five cup, which is polypropylene. Polypropylene is a material that's highly valued. Recycling of polypropylene is on the rise. It's 
accepted in over 74% of communities in the U.S., higher than that in Canada. And there's a huge demand right now for recycled polypropylene to be made into new value-add products. So there's a really strong trajectory right now, which to us signaled this is a good choice. It also met all of our quality criteria, which is super important for us. Um, We can't compromise on the quality of the cup which for us means like the plastic can't crack when it's punctured. So if you haven't experienced a, a Keurig brewer, you know, you, you put the pot in, you close the brewer, and there's a needle that punctures the bottom of the cup and the top of the cup. And then that allows the water to pass through in brewing the, the beverage. So if you're not using the right material, the plastic can crack. It can allow grounds to grow and in, go into the coffee cup as it's brewing. And no one wants grounds in their coffee. It's not a good experience. So polypropylene enabled us to meet those and a number of other quality requirements for the pod. That you know, as we can assess that technically, there's also a piece of the conversation that we took to recyclers directly, and we said what do you guys think about polypropylene? Do you like it? Do you want it? Are you collecting it today? And then we um, actually in 2015, we started doing testing directly with recyclers. And then the work begins now, obviously, on, on changing over our packaging lines. So it does require us to take those packaging lines one by one. We have over 100 lines, take them off the network, make the changes required, and bring them back into the network without disrupting production. How do you measure progress and what are your metrics of success towards reaching um, your environmental goals, both in sustainable sourcing and in recycling? We have been making extraordinary progress on the environmental side. Um, We do have, you know, internal uh, systems in which we track progress. We did meet our um, emissions reduction goal in 2016, our fiscal 2016 year, which is um, fantastic. The goal was a 25% reduction, and and we met it early. Uh, so we're actually in the progress of taking a really deep look and uh, saying, what do we want to do next? You know, right beside that is we are almost there with our zero waste to landfill goal, and we're almost there with our water balance goal. So across the board on the environmental metrics, the team is just doing an incredible job across the network in in meeting those goals. Um, So Keurig has a pretty unusually um, generous amount of time that you give employees to do volunteer work. Um, What benefit does that give to the company? Sure, yeah, that benefit that we offer is 52 paid hours a year um, for every full-time salary or um, full-time employee. And we have incredible participation in it and have historically. We call it our CAFE program, Community Action for Employees. And, you know, I think the benefits that we see in participation in the program and there simply being the option to participate in the program is, one, it's a direct communication of our values. And that value gets communicated to the employee and from the employee back to us as an employer, as they use it, as they provide feedback to us that they want it, that they appreciate it, that they take value from it both personally and professionally. 
but it's also a communication of our value to the communities in which we operate. So let's zoom ahead to another topic, very different, biomimicry, which is innovation inspired by nature. Uh, the book that spawned that, that coined that term, uh, it was written by Janine Benyus and published 20 years ago in May, May 21st, 1997. I've known Janine for a long, long time. Uh, she's, a, she's a good friend of mine, and uh, I dialed her up recently to do an interview, it's, it's going to Q and A is going to run next week on Greenvis. I thought we'd tease it a little bit here uh, to give a, a taste of of the conversation I had with Janine. Um, biomimicry is about taking advantage of evolution's 3.8 billion years of R and D since the very very first bacteria. And biomimics, what they do is they study nature's best ideas, things like photosynthesis, brain power, shells, the structure of, of shells and adapt them for human use. So biomimicry involves asking, well, how would nature do that? That being uh, whatever mechanical or business issue or even organizational issue uh, comes up. Uh, and just for quick examples, I mean, one of the best known examples of biomimicry well before this was uh, a word was is Velcro. Velcro was invented by a Swiss engineer uh, in 1941, after he removed burrs from his dog and decided to take a look at, at how that worked. And he found that there were small hooks at the end of the burr needles, and that inspired him to, to create what is now ubiquitous, Velcro. Just one example. Another one is, is uh, from Interface, the carpet company. Uh, they developed a, a floor carpet tile called Entropy, which uh, is based on the design of the forest floor. One of the problems with carpet tiles in a, in a, say, a commercial office building is that some of it gets worn as people, they're in high traffic areas, you have to pick them up and replace them, and, and there's glues and other things, but also there's just color matching. Things fade, and the, the dye lots change from batch to batch, things like that. And, of course, in the forest, there is no color matching. Everything belongs. You pick up a stick here and put it down there, and it fits. So they built, which is, uh, I think, a th one point was a third of, of Interface's billion-dollar revenue around these carpet tiles. They created a, uh, a uh, adhesive that mimics the gecko, which can seemingly magically adhere to surfaces. They created something called tactiles, which is a glue-free carpet insulation system that is based on the... Uh, the phenomenon that allows geckos to basically, you know, stick to ceilings. Anyway, interesting, interesting area. So I talked to Janine, as I said, uh, and a long conversation. We'll play about a five or six minute excerpt here during the interview. And very typical of Janine, she was taking a nature walk in uh, near her home in the Bitterroot Valley, which is south of Missoula, Montana, somewhere between Glacier and Yellowstone's National Park. She actually said she walked about four miles by the time our call was finished uh, out in this gorgeous, gorgeous area uh, where she can look for 75 miles of 10,000 foot peaks and canyons that still apparently has snow on top. And so you'll hear some of that uh, footsteps crunching in the background. Uh, we'll run a piece next week that's a, a more in-depth uh, Q&A about this. But for now, here's a taste of that conversation. 
It feels like biomimicry is one of those things that people have heard of but haven't quite figured it out. And they know that there's a few companies that have done some things, but it still feels like a challenge to you know really get inside a company and get them to think about in these terms. How has it changed in the last, uh, even not 20 years, obviously, but in the last five? What I've been really seeing is that, you know, in the beginning, bringing living systems theory into companies seemed like a stretch, except for a few companies that were doing the adaptive learning thing and, you know, Pierre Senge and Meg Wheatley and people like that. Even that, them, that was based on physics. So, so to bring biology in, it seemed as if, you know, people, people felt like they really needed to have biological expertise in order to, to use this, right? And that, I think, is still true. I think one of the reasons it's a slow adopt is that you really do need biologists to interpret how life works. You're not going to become a biologist. Even if you're a process chemistry engineer, you're not going to become a biochemist, right? So you, it is a team sport. You, you, and, and biologists do not work at these companies. So it's a it is a, it's a workforce issue, really, on one, on one level, because you really need that. It's a translation that needs to be done. So you need somebody who has the ability to search the biological literature. But as far as living systems thinking, that's something I think that can be taught and incorporated. I think there are principles about how life works, how life works with feedback loops, how it works with communication strategies, how it, what are the rules of self-organization, what are the rules of, of mutualistic partnerships that maintain through time. Those are things that actually people can start to understand. So I, what I'm seeing is that, you know, you, you hear them called regenerative principles, right? or living systems principles. That doesn't seem odd anymore. I think there's a hunger for it. But as you say, a lot of people know about biomimicry and know, even know about living systems, but they, it, it, it's not quite the thing yet that you have the, the, the must-have professional development piece, right? I watched design thinking become something that even a finance company would all of a sudden take, put their people through design thinking classes because they thought that'll free them up for creativity. I think that's going to happen with life living systems or life systems thinking, biomimicry thinking. I think we'll get picked up like design thinking did. I think it's a, it's about to, as people say, we're using these metaphors all the time, but do we really understand what's going on? Right. But I'm seeing it. I'm seeing. I'm seeing the the immune system change from, wow, that's weird. It's something cool that we did in an offsite. To, well, that's a necessary way of thinking. And, you know, then I pick up Fortune in October, and was it October? The October Fortune it was the number one trend for Fortune magazine for what you needed to to incorporate. The number one. Uh, trend for, you know, they said that in the article, they say, if you're not using biomimicry to invent, you're leaving money on the table. So it's like, I think the appetite has been, has been created now. And I think that if there was a case study that was well known as biomimetic, that was household word, and that was a billion dollar company idea, 
That, I think, would lead a lot of people to say, okay, let's try to actually apply the methodology and try to invent in this way. What's it going to take to in get the meantime, there? In the meantime, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be one of those case studies that ever, that's on people's lips. They're able to, besides Velcro, right? They're able to say, this was invented in the following way. And, you know, and when, when companies start calling themselves living systems companies, right? And what does that mean? You know, when they start to really adopt it, I don't know, you know, I, I, there's something about design thinking, for instance, which I think is analogous. And what put that over the top? I think it was, you know, IDEO just having, having a lot of great case studies. And they said, well, how did that work? How did that work? What is design thinking? All right. It's the same sort of a thing, I think. And it's, you know, biology, and this is what we've been working on for 20 years, Joel, is to create the workforce, the people trained and the tools available that when that appetite turns to, okay, I'm ready for the meal now, people will be able to hire trained biomimics that have our master's of science degree out of Arizona State University and have worked with us for two years. They'll be able to subscribe to Synapse, which is our, which is our new biomimicry Intel service where it sort of comes to you, the inspiration comes to you. They'll be able to use Ask Nature in a way that, w that is informed by AI, because we have a partnership now with IBM. And they're taking Watson, Watson meets Ask Nature. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events that we mentioned in this episode. Thank you to podcast director Stephanie Joyce. Contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.